what I'm going to talk about, it says, is time preference, and what is that? Well, time preference is a um, general term that's used to describe um, our attitude towards or our preferences for um, future outcomes. And this, the subject matter is intertemporal choices. What are they? Intertemporal well, choices are basically, you could say they're pretty well any choice that we ever make, but they're choices between outcomes that occur at different times. So, um, for example, I could be given an opportunity to give a talk today and an opportunity to give another talk in a week, and, and perhaps these are mutually exclusive. Well, then if I choose between them, that's an intertemporal choice. I'm, I'm choosing between two outcomes that occur at different times. Now, most of the time, the kinds of things that we're concerned about and the intertemporal choices that really torment us, and I would su suggest that pretty well all the choices that bother us you know, that, that cause us um, trouble are trade-offs between um, where we have to give up something um, now in order to get something bigger later. So in other words, trade-offs between smaller sooner and larger later outcomes. What are some examples of this? Well, oh, these two jumped up at once. Uh, many people um, you know, have to deliberate between whether they should have a dessert now or later on in life be slender. All of us have thought about it one time or Or if you go to the shop to, and you're looking at a big screen TV and you're kind of tempted by it, um, you are making a decision whether you like it or not. <coughs> a big screen TV now or something more later, a bigger pension later. If you're young and you buy a big screen TV, you're cutting down your pension by a lot. Maybe it's okay because, of course, you're going to have the pleasure of that big screen TV. But you are cutting down your pension. Um, in educational institutions, um, we're familiar with the choice between going to work, getting an immediate income, or getting an education and a larger income later. And there are benefits to education, to income, but of course they are bought with having to spend time studying. If you don't like that, you may not want to do it. And more generally, if you do, um, and these are the kinds of, of, of things that I'll be concerned about in the empirical work I'll be discussing today, is there'll be a choice between some money now or more money later. Yeah. So it's well known that people are impatient and that you know, if, you're, if I offer you, and, and what I mean by impatient, we like to have um, things now rather than later if we hold everything constant. You know? Here's a nice quote I like from Bertrand Russell. He says, when the journey from means to end is not too long, the means themselves are enjoyed if the end is ardently desired. A boy will toil uphill with a toboggan for the sake of the few brief moments of bliss during the descent. No one has to urge him to be industrious, and however he may puff and pant, he is still happy. But if instead of the immediate reward, you promised him an old age pension at 70, his energy would very quickly flag. I love this quote. I like the, the concept of this little guy here running up the hill to kind of add a little increment to his pension. You know, and then immediately he gets transported down, perhaps by an elevator, to the bottom of the hill, and he has to run up again to add a little bit more to his pension. I don't think he'd be running up the hill right now. I have you know, kids about that age, and I can tell you there's no chance. So what I want to talk about today is first give a little introduction to the economics of intertemporal choice. There'll be very little introduction. I started out when I'm making uh, my slides with lots of graphs, and then I thought, no, there's, no, there's nothing really in these graphs that is of broad interest. You know, so I tried to summarize it in, in a very brief way. 
And then I'll talk a little bit about what do behavioral scientists um, think about intertemporal choice, or really what, perhaps I should say, what have behavioral scientists learned about intertemporal choices. And then I'll tell you about some of my current research. That's it. Okay, so what is um, time discounting? Because time discounting is really the, um, the topic. In general, people prefer future outcomes. Um, if, if I offer you, say, 100 pounds now, or 100 pounds in a year, pretty much expect everyone in the room is going to take 100 pounds now. It's not actually, sometimes people, people make the, the other choice. And the reason they do, by the way, is um, for self-control reasons. This is if you ask people who do that. You know, they kind of feel like, oh, if, you get, if I get 100 pounds now, I'll just go and blow it. But if I have a year to think about what I'm going to do with it, then uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll have something kind of sensible to use it for. So sometimes people even, you know, will, will take, but this is rare. You know, so that's, that's a digression. And we can measure time discounting you know, mathematically, you know, if I can call that it's mathematical, it's such a simple equation. Um, I, I'm sure all of us being here are um, self-conscious about calling something mathematical. But we can measure as being the rate at which value um, changes with time. We use a discount rate, which is just like an interest rate for ourselves. So the VSS, I'm not really going to be using these. I'm just actually wondering if there's a pointer here. I like using pointers. No, I don't think it works. Okay, well, VSS is just like the, the value of something that you, you get now, a smaller, sooner outcome. VLL is a larger, later outcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure that. A room full of pointers. Thank you very much. This is, this is all I want. Oh, my God, my goodness. The technology is... is it's blossoming. Thank you. So I'm actually going to be able to advance the slides. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, sure. Cool. Now you're going to see me learn a new technology here. Um, or a, a new... You are, I think. Yeah. Look at that. Okay, so this R is like an interest rate that we you know, apply to our own future... Um, outcomes or, um, or, or experiences. I'm going to get, get you to, I'm going to measure your um, interest rate, your discount rate in just a moment. Okay, so why should we discount the future? Well, there's lots of reasons for it, and I'm really not going to go into a big list of them, but here's an example of, a, of, an, of an explanation. Why should we discount the future? Well, some reasons are, you know, why would I take more money now rather than later? Well, one reason is because I can invest the money and earn more later. I'll talk about that in a moment. But here's a, perhaps a fundamental reason why we might discount in general. Think of uh, uh, what we're doing when we're making decisions. You know, we're, we're the products of evolution. You know? And so what we're, make, what we're doing when we're making choices, and I've, I've, this is a very gross simplification. Anyone, um, you know, we, could, we might have to change the word inclusive fitness here for children. But we can imagine that if uh, um, I give you some money now, you can translate that money now into some children, you know, into some offspring. Or if you get money later, you can translate it into, into offspring. And uh, if um, I give you, you know, more money later, you can, <coughs> you can perhaps potentially transform it into, um, in, 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 into more offspring. But the older you are, the less offspring you can turn the money into. You know, like a young person can turn a very small amount of money into a lot of offspring. An older person will need a lot of money 
to, 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 to get one, one, one offspring. So then, you know, if, from an evolutionary perspective, you should actually discount the future a lot for money because you need a lot more money in the future to get that one child than you need now. And this is actually, I mean, seriously, not in the, in the tongue-in-cheek way I've described it put forward as a reason why young adults discount more, because they can get more fitness or more children per unit of resource than the older ones. I'm not going to, to dwell on this explanation, but I just want to point out that there are um, reasons why um, you know, discounting the future is, is not necessarily irrational or unsensible. Oops. See, this is the technology. I'm, what was going on here? I feel like I'm going forward. Yes. Ah, thank you. It's counterintuitive. Human factors. Issue here. The bottom button is going um, forward. And it feels like it's going backwards. Okay. So what I would like you to do is I would like you to um, answer a question. Imagine you can have 200 pounds today or some amount of money in two years. You know, imagine that I was my pockets bulging with cash, and I'm here prepared to give you 200 pounds now, or some money in two years. And, this, and please assume, because it's just hypothetical cash in my pockets, you can also assume that hypothetically I'm a very trustworthy guy, and in two years I'm going to be here with pockets. There's a lot more cash in them. And I ask you, so what would you demand in two years in exchange for giving up 200 pounds today? Inflation. It's a question. Yeah. And to, uh, to write down your answer, you don't have. I, I'm not going to, you know, do a, do a show of hands. Or we'll just put counterparty risk in there. Pardon me. <laughs> well, oh, it's the risk that you won't complete the transaction. Zero. Assume it's zero for now. I mean, I just said, like, it's, you know, we're talking. It's, it's the money's not really here, so you can kind of allow your imagination to run wild, <laughs> allow it to run so wild that you think that I'm going to return in two years <laughs> if I could fold you with cash. Yeah. Uh, and write down the number. Why not? Just so that you've co you committed yourself, if you can. You know, or remember it. Because we know that we can keep um, at least six. Free will, everyone can keep at least six things in their mind. So uh, you can remember this one thing, this, this, this number. Also just do this. This should be easier. Choose between 100 pounds today, 175 pounds in 10 years. So you'll have a number, how much you want in two years. And you have a choice here. Okay, so how do you make this choice? How do we, um, well, if I ask people, if I give people choices like this and I ask them um, to explain the choices they make, uh, this is the kind of thing that, that I'll, I'll get. Um, I, I'm impulsive and 10 years is a long time to wait. A lot of people will say that. Or some version of that. You know? I could use it to buy my wife a gift and talk about you know, what your immediate needs are. Or I need the money now. Now, these are usually the wrong answers to the question. Right? So from an economic point of view, these are the wrong answers to this question. That you, that none of these things should be relevant to your decision here. I mean, how trustworthy I am, whoops, is, is a legitimate reason, assuming that, you know, assuming you weren't allowing your imagination to run wild, that would be a good reason. But none of these reasons here are good ones. Right? But these are the reasons that everybody gets. So, so, what, so why is this? So why is this the case? Well, how should we choose between 100 pounds today and 175 pounds in 10 years, or between any, making any intertemporal choice like this? Well, what we should just think about is, what is the opportunity cost of money? You know? 
So if you took 100 pounds now and you were to kind of put it in the bank and invest it, how much could you earn by saving or investing that money? That's the question I ask. And is it more or less than 175 pounds in 10 years? If it's less, if you could earn less than 175 pounds in 10 years, then you should get, um, you should take 175 pounds. If it's more, you should take the 100 pounds now. And that's it. No other thing should enter into your into decision making at all. And everything else is just, um, uh, it's, 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 it's the error that I was, I was speaking about. Okay. So, as I've put here, that these are usually the wrong answers. Now, for, so I don't know if any of you, I didn't ask for a show of hands. No, this is why I would normally do ask you for a show of hands. But there you, if you have more than 100 pounds in the bank, and don't expect that to change in 10 years, and I suspect that that counts for everybody in this room, right? you should take the 175 pounds in 10 years. Right? If you have less than 100 pounds in the bank and need to borrow it more than, than 6%, you know, and need to borrow, I mean that you have a, a pressing need, then you should certainly take the uh, 100 pounds now. Um, I mean, even then, you, I, I could say, well, if you could get a promise of 175 pounds in 10 years, you might be able to borrow 100 pounds at, at a decent rate, but maybe not um, at, at 6%. So then it should be right. So pretty well all of us in this room should take the 175 pounds in 10 years. And I think, that I don't know whether you thought that you would take the money in 10 years or not. My guess is that not too many of you did. I know that in an experiment, if I, if I were to ask a room of people like yourselves to make that choice, I'll get pretty close to zero people um, choosing 175 pounds. So, Alan, I also wanted to figure out what your um, discount rate is. So when you, remember I asked you, you can have, uh, you can have 200 pounds now versus some amount of money in two years, and how much would you require in two years? Well, if you can remember your amount of uh, money that you sold, and uh, how does it, what was your discount rate? And the way you can work that out is if the, if your, um, whoops, sorry, um, if, if you thought, if you said, oh, any number between 200 and 208 would be um, sufficient, then your discount rate is less than 2%. If it's between 208 and 16, it's less, it's between 2 and 4, and so forth. I wouldn't mind getting a little bit of a show of hands, get a sense of it. Let's start here. How many people thought that they would want between four, between 216 and 233? Somewhere, yeah. okay, so four or five people. 233, 269, okay, a bunch of people. So now you see we're getting into pretty big interest rates. Um, I don't know, well, let's, let's keep going. 269 to 307. Okay, so now we're talking, you know, large, large discount and larger than 307. So let's just say, okay, a lot of people larger than 307. Um, I, I think you said larger than 307. Is that right? Oh, is that right? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't ask any further questions. Then. I didn't mean to intrude. You know? um, um, I mean, I took the view you said uh, any, how much money would you demand in in return for giving up, so why not say two million? Right. Ah, yes, but the, the, the thing is, is that you would then require me to, um, you know, like I, I may say, oh, well, I, I won't, I won't agree to those terms, right? But, but you're right, you're right. This is a very, this is a, this is a very good answer. What I should have done, 
if I was uh, doing a proper um, economics experiment here, is I would have an auction, right? So I would, get, I would have you all bid for um, the, the 200 pounds now, or, or, or I would have you all bid, so that I would, I would find, for each of you, I would ask for each of you to give me the minimum amount you would require. And it would be a, and, you know, a sort of bidding situation such that I would pay the person, I would you know, randomly choose the person in the room, and if you, and whatever amount um, you had written down, say if it was the lowest amount of anyone in the classroom, I would give you this, this amount here, otherwise I would pay you the 200 pounds. So in other words, I would give you an auction. I hope I said that correctly. That was um, incentive compatible. This is what um, experimentally um, economists would say, an incentive compatible auction to get your true indifference point. And this is why I was looking for. What about between Pardon me? 200 and 208? Why didn't I ask the question? You didn't ask for a show of hands. Enough. No, I didn't. How many? 200, 200, 208. Graham, and, and, and so the, the, are you an economist? No. 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 I just asked because Graham is, you see. And uh, um, yes, I didn't ask just because I, uh, I, I didn't anticipate a lot of people to, to, to be there, well, except some troublemakers. <laughs> no, no. And, 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 and what, why did you make that? Well, because Exactly. This is the yeah. yeah. I mean, and and in, in a sense, that, that is the the, um, the story. That that's that's what that's the decision that all of us should make. Right? That all, all of us should make. We should be thinking: How much am I earning on, or how much can I earn on this two hundred pounds in in, in 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 a year? And that sh and the maximum I can earn should be my cutoff. Yeah. As he should, you know, in that. In the way that the economists talk. Why are you only doing the banking system? Well, whoever you can in invest, I mean, if you can earn more, I, I, used, I used bank just as a generic term for invest, so however you, you, you can invest. So if you can earn, say, 220 with an investment of 200 now, right? Then, um, then it, it, that should be your cutoff point. So, if I offered you more than 220, for example, you you, you should take it. But the, but that's but but, but the, the term banking is I'm I'm using merely to describe what you can earn through and through and through investment. So, um, I, I'm afraid it's a, 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 a shorthand. Right? So, how much can you could you earn if you had 200 pounds now? Well, I mean, are we putting it into holiday accommodation? Or <laughs> well, let me, ask, let me ask you this question. Do you have any money in a savings account right now? Uh, yes. Yeah. I it's mean, probably earning 1%, right? Well, okay, but it's earning probably 1%, right? So if you had another opportunity, like say you could put your money into holiday accommodation, earning more than that, then why is it in your savings account? I'm sorry, That's the first I, question. I should have said no, I don't think it's in savings account. Sure. So it would be the That's marginal. Right. Yeah. It, uh, okay. So it would be your marginal two hundred hundred pounds. Yeah. So, yes. so well, these are these are details that I didn't. <laughs> but but yeah. So think about what is the, the, the. So let's say that you say I've got some money in the bank. 
Let's, let's skip over this. I think, no, I think the point is... It, it. <laughs> and we can do a workshop on this in a, 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 later, a later session. Maybe we'll have time during questions for all these details to come out. Okay, so anyway, there are some predictions that come out of experiment or that sorry, from conventional economics that uh, have been tested by psychologists um, like myself. The, the, the first, maybe the major prediction is that the discount rate should be, and this is what I've been discussing now, should be equal to the market rate. Really, all the other predictions kind of fall from that. Right, so whatever, whatever the rate is that you are facing in the financial marketplace, in other words, whatever your money is currently earning, that should be your discount rate. Right? And so if um, your money is earning um, more than what... Um, I've offered you, then you should take the earlier amount. If it's earning less, you should take the later amount. And in most experiments, uh, we find that people choose, well, uh, virtually, I, I say most, it's practically every study imaginable, people choose um, amounts that will demand in a trade-off, the sort of just been describing an amount that's larger than, than, than what they would actually earn. In, in the marketplace, and this is an even in well-designed experiments in which, you, which you know, there's no there's no thought that maybe by accident the exp um, the, the researcher will give you, um, you know, uh, more than you deserve. The discount rate should be independent of magnitude. And what that means is that, let's say, imagine two choices now. Um, and you have a choice between 100 at some point and 120 at some later point. This could be now, this could be two years. And let's say you're um, indifferent between these, then you should also be indifferent between, between 200 now and 240 um, in a year. And for the same reason that you know, if you can earn a certain amount on this, then you can earn same amount on this. Discount rate should be equal for losses and for gains. Similar reasons for this. That, you know, um, if you add 100 pounds to your bank account, then the opportunity cost of that money is whatever you're earning. Like I'm using the bank account again in this informal way. Right? That's the amount that you would be earning. If, if you take 100 pounds out of the bank account, the amount you're losing is equal to the interest that you would be, um, that you are you're foregone, that you're, you're, you're not obtaining by having that money no longer in your account. And finally, the discount whoops, should be independent of delay length. And what that means is that if I ask you to uh, make a choice between now and something in a year, it should be roughly equal to um, the discount rate, not the total amount of discounting, of course, should be equal than if I ask you to make a, discount, a choice between something now and something in two years. Right? You should just simply take your discount rate and project it out for a, um, another year. And by the way, these are all controversial issues. Right? Like I'm saying these as um, we've already seen with the discussion, right? these controversies can quickly be generated. That um, all of these claims um, you know, are subject to, to, um, to discussion or to debate. But they are the sort of basic um, assertions of um, what I would call con conventional economics. And they're the starting point of, um, of, of psychological research into, into time discounting. I've been testing these. And what we find is that all of these things are, um, are not true. 
The discount rate is universally in experiments. Well, actually, I'll, 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 I'll make a slight digression about that in a sec. Generally, it's greater than the market rate. So for the kinds of little choices that I've asked you to make um, in this class, we find that the discount rate is always greater than the market rate. Discount rate decreases with magnitude. And what that means is, is this. Suppose I, I find that you're completely indifferent between 100 now and 120 in a year. So I've established that you don't care which of these you get. Well, you're almost, you very likely prefer 240 in a year to 200 now. That's called the magnitude effect, right? Scaling up the um, amount makes people more patient, right? They, they, they have a, um, they, you know, their preferences move towards the, um, the, the later outcome. Discount rate is greater for gains than losses. So if you were trading off between, let's say, say start with the same situation. Imagine you were indifferent between 100 now and 120 in a year. But now I offer you a choice between um, minus 100 or minus 120 in a year. Well, what should happen, according to sort of conventional theory, is that you should be indifferent between these two um, outcomes. But what you'll find is that people will want to pay the 100 now, indicating that their discount rate is, um, is, is, is lower for losses than for gains. And finally, if I, let's imagine now, I'm going to use, make it a bit easier on, my, on myself. Imagine this is now, this is one year, this is two, and I find you're indifferent between 100 now and 110 in, uh, in a year. That, that it's very likely, now, now this is a 10% growth, growth rate. So now I add 10% to this, and I get 121. Right. So if you're indifferent between this and this, it implies that your discount rate is 10%. So you should be indifferent now between this and this. But in fact, you won't be. You'll prefer this to this. Your discount rate will be lower for this longer interval of time. What does that mean, prefer? I mean, what about a person who uses a calculator to make their decisions? Right. Or is that not permitted? No, it's absolutely permitted. Yeah, you can use a calculator. But then the thing is, is that suppose you use a calculator, right? And you say, oh, I've, I've come up with these three. You know, I see that, that, um, that I have this indifference, right? which is probably, as you can see, 10% is pretty high. You probably shouldn't have had that indifference. <laughs> and now I've calculated this, and I've got, oh, 121. And I see, oh, well, then this preference implies that I should have this preference. And so I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to take that, right? Well, I don't know if that's your preference. All I know is that you have another meta rule, which is that I should be consistent, and you've implied that to, uh, to, to, um, you know, to, to the problem. And this is how I could tell. Suppose I ask you these two questions, and, you're, um, um, you, know, and, you, and you show this pattern where you're indifferent between this and this, and I'm indifferent between this and this. So then I say, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to clone you because I, I, I'm going to have, I want to have, you know, um, different groups of people who are identical. So I clone you. And, and what I do is one of your clones, but I clone you before I ask the questions. Right? In other words, I do random assignment to groups. I get the whole classroom, I get the whole, sorry, classroom, the whole group of people in this room, and I divide you up in, into three groups. And one of you gets this, correct choice, 
one of you gets this one, and one of you gets this set. Right. And what I find consistency here, but I find that people tend to prefer this to this, but prefer this to this. Okay. So that's how I can tell whether what's going on is you're using a calculator or you're, or you're telling me what your preference is right. through, through experiments. And indeed, you do find that people want to be consistent. But surprisingly, you, you find that people generally don't care. Right? So even if they use a calculator, they don't really feel that there's anything inconsistent about, about this pattern of preferences. I mean, you might as an individual, but on average, the people don't, um, don't feel there's any, any, um, um, any inconsistencies here. And I, I will say, I've just finished a paper. This, this is you know, not part of, it's part of my talk now. I just finished a paper on the magnitude effect, in which I, um, this was done with um, my colleague Shane Frederick in, um, at, at, at Yale, where we looked at people's, um, whether people felt of the magnitude effect was uh, a bias or not. And so we asked people, to, you know, what would be your indifference point between 100 now and, and say 110 um, in a year. I'm giving you a shorthand version of the study. And then other people were asked about 1,000 now. No, sorry. Yes, other people were asked about 1,000 now and 1,100 in a year. And some people were asked about both on the same page in which they were encouraged to, you know, to think about and deliberate about the uh, joint um, the two, the, 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 the two preferences together, and it made no difference. So on average, it doesn't make a difference having the calculator. And why I say it makes no difference is that there was a strong magnitude effect so that people would prefer um, this to this, sorry, I got this right, yes, and this to this, but it didn't make a difference whether they compared the options. They didn't see any inconsistency or that was that was problematic. So, so this is for you know, this is like research that is in the rest of my talk, but I, I just 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 finished that study with, with Shane. Mm -hmm. oh, whoops. Okay, so I just want to um, go into a, a few of the phenomena, tell you a little bit about um, um, my own research in intertemporal choice. This is some older research. Um, and uh, but I, I, I cited it because I, I think it, it it's one of those things that resonates with us. Right? Um, and this is a study I, I did in which, so of course more complicated than this, but this is the basic uh, 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 design of a number of conditions. People were asked to choose what snack they would like to eat in a week. So then, and the choice was between. You know, some fruit and some cho and some chocolate. Actually, these pictures um, make make the the, the, the chocolates, at any rate, look much nicer than they were. Basically, it was it was a piece of fruit, or a piece or some junk food, and the junk food was like you know um, deep fried peanuts. What they call beer? They call them beer nuts in the U.S. This was done in the Netherlands. It's called borel noten. You know, and they're peanuts dipped in batter and fried, and uh, as well as some 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 chocolates or they could have um, an apple or a banana. And they were asked to choose a week in advance what they would want um, um, a week later. And then, not surprisingly, you can imagine, I, uh, 
well, first I should say that what happened is that most people, 74% of people, chose a piece of fruit when they were choosing for a week from, 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 from that day. And then, um, the, a week later, they, were, they made another choice. I came to them with the fruit and with the chocolates and said, now today, what would you like? You can either have a piece of fruit or a piece of you know, nuts. And if they said, oh, you know, I chose last week, you say, yeah, well, you know, we have plenty of either. You can, you can change your mind if you want. <laughs> and in fact, people really did change their mind. So that now, 70% uh, of people chose um, the chocolate or the junk food. Um, so there was this tremendous reversal of it. And, and actually, there were a lot of subjects in the study, and virtually nobody went from um, chocolate to fruit. I think there were four people in the whole study. Whereas masses of people went from fruit to chocolate, it was very powerful. The fact, and I think that we can kind of understand that. I mean, self-control problems. You know, the smoker finishes a cigarette and says, "I'm never going to smoke another cigarette." You know, an hour later, uh, you know, where can I get some um, some cigarettes? Dieters, you know, say, "I'll tonight I'm going to have salad for, uh, for for dinner." Dinner time comes around, you know, and there's this big beef Wellington or something on their plate, you know, and so forth. I mean, th these are things that we all um, recognize. I will say about this, by the way, that I've been doing research using the same design with money, just, I mean, and I just finished a paper which is, which is, is, is quite critical, showing that um, with monetary choices, this kind of preference reversal um, doesn't seem to, to occur, at least not with this. It's, 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 this is really about one thing that contributes to um, biases in time in, in how we value things over time is the arousal that comes from you know, seeing and you know, having the opportunity to, to, to consume. You know, that can be consuming chocolates, you know, food, it could be consuming other things, it could be smoking or drinking or whatever other things that lead us, you know, that, that arouse us and lead us to, to you know, and, and offer us the prospect of immediate gratification. So, so, what I want to talk about the rest of the film is some current work in which what I look at is, look at problems like this, but I take what's called a framing approach. And since this is a bit of an kind of inter, you know, introductory session, I want to tell you a bit about uh, two kinds of ways of thinking about um, errors or anomalies in, um, in any kind of behavior. We'll talk about time preference right now. Now, one of them is what I describe here, like say I describe the magnitude effect. So you give a one, one person a choice between 100 and 120, another person a choice between 200 and 240. And I find that the, uh, the ordering is different for this um, um, choice than for this choice. But, this, but one thing that's important here is that these are actually different um, options. Right? These are different. You know, and, and, it's, and you know, it's quite relatively easy to sit down and think about reasons why you might have different um, preference orderings for these two pairs of options. Rational reasons. One, one example would be, suppose that it was a little bit costly to receive later money. You know, perhaps you, you were given a check and you had to put it in the bank. And so it costs you something to cash that check. And it may not be worth your while, it may not be worth 20 pounds to cash a check. It may be worth more than 20 pounds of your time to cash a check. But it may not be worth more than 40 pounds of your time. So in other words, here you might take the 100, because you just can't be bothered cashing a check for 20 pounds. 
Here you take um, the 240 because you can be bonded cashing a check for a 40 pound benefit. Right? So that's just an example of the kind of um, story that you could tell to explain why this pattern, this magnitude effect pattern, which is just to remind you is this, might be rational. Now, research that, um, now framing effects are different than that. What framing effects are, we're saying, let's take the same pair of options, say 100 and 120, and what we do is we describe them in different ways. We, we, we change the context, you know, but it's the same pair of options. Right? So now, any arguments about which one is the right thing to choose, I don't really, we don't necessarily know what you should choose, but we know that if you should choose 120, at time, you know, in one context, you should also choose 120 in the other context. Assuming that we haven't changed something about the context, which is, you know, which is, which is relevant. You know, like, like if the context was, you need 100 pounds to save the life of your, of your child, you know, well that, that, and the other context is, you need 100 pounds to buy a big box of chocolates. Well, of course, you might find that people's preference for that 100 pounds now change in that context. It has, to, it has to be nothing like that. It has to be some irrelevant feature of the context or the, or the description is changed so that the, op the options themselves are not different. They're the same options, but somehow what you've done is made people think about different aspects of those options. Right? So, and that's essentially what framing is. You know, when we use the term framing, what we use it to describe is um, situations in which people are given descriptions of options in such a way that their preferences, and the, the things they think about, the things that come to mind about those options are changed by the description. That's what advertisers try to do. Right? You know, you've got a car, it's the same car, but you know, they try to they put an advertisement to make you think of different features of the car to change your preferences. When you actually get the car, it's not going to make a difference how it was advertised. Okay, so the, so the idea of framing is that we change the context in such a way that it cues memory, attention, or perception in a way to influence people's preferences or, 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 or choice. And a framing effect is the term we use to describe how when this, this influence, when there's a change in preference as a function of this um, change in description. Oops. Okay, well this is just a, a list. Um, am I really running out of time? This, Excuse me, sorry. Well, I think I am actually. Yeah. Okay, so these are. This is a list of possible things um, that people could focus on um, um, when framing of, uh, uh, um, you know, when thinking about different different options. I'm not going to go through this list, but I'm just showing you that when I think about um, two two choices, um, two options, there's a lot of things that could come to mind that I could reflect on. And if I only reflect on a subset of those then my um, preferences will be influenced by which of that subset of things I focus on when I'm making the choice. And is it possible for like, simple redescriptions of options to change preference? That, that, that's, that's what I'm seeking for right now. Okay, well, I've already mentioned the uh, standard frame in intertemporal choice. Um, and, and that's the kind of question that you um, answered earlier. A choice between, say, 100 pounds a day or 150 pounds in one year. Or 100 pounds a day is equal to um, so much money in one year. And the reason I call this the standard frame is that there's a lot of research in intertemporal choice. I mean, I've you know, contributed you know, some, some quantity of research, but, the, but you know, as, as I've did, I have many, many other people. And pretty well all studies that are done use some version of questions like this, right? So, but there are other ways we can ask essentially the same questions. Um, and 
one thing we might want to know is, well, does it make a difference? Does, does asking questions in a different way lead people to, um, to focus on different aspects of, um, of, of, of problems? If you ask people this question, you find some degree of patience. If you ask people this question, you find that they're much more likely to take the uh, larger amount. And then one explanation could be that when you make this choice, there's a lot of things you could think about when, um, when you're, you're making a decision. You could, um, and one of them is, oh, I, I gained 50 pounds. The other one is, oh, I can, I can spend the money on something, and so forth. But perhaps when you see this frame, you're more likely to think about, well, how much money can I earn on this money if I, if I invested it? And that leads to people being much more likely to take 150 pounds in one year. That's an example of framing. Right? It's focusing, you know, it just seems to kind of shift people's attention towards a slightly different aspect of the task. By the way, I've put the word nudge here. You know, because the original concept of nudging, which is, I think, the, the, the currently, it's just been, um, the, 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 the current government used it in a more broad way. The original concept of nudging was that you make a very small change to the choice environment the person faces, and it changes their, their preferences. And this would, these are examples of, 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 of nudging. If you want people to be more patient, and they're making, inter they're making intertemporal choices, well, this is one way of doing it, by giving them this percentage frame rather than an amount frame. Another thing is that if you ask people to make choices in which the future is described in terms of dates rather than in terms of um, you know, uh, on a period of time, that's what we're What's that? <laughs> I thought, oh, this is great. I put, I'll, I put the right date. I checked the calendar. I didn't check the calendar. But that actually could explain why I get that effect. <laughs> uh, I assure you that it was. It was. This, these errors were not in, in the in the, uh, in the materials. You know. <laughs> There's another one that I just I'm working on now with uh, Chris Olivola here. This actually is, isn't one that I discovered myself, or at least some version of it I have, which is that if you ask people to choose between 100 pounds and zero in one year, or 150 pounds in one year, that's the choice. They're more patient, more likely to choose this. Uh oh, see this? I put this slide in the last minute. Okay, forget the zero. Take it away. Okay, 100 pounds. So there's more patience. I have to change it. Watch me. <laughs> okay. okay. More patience in that in, in that situation. Uh, and what seems to happen here is that it reminds people of the opportunity cost. Right? That, that um, by mentioning zero in one year, what you're reminding people of is that there is a cost to taking the hundred pounds now. Whereas here, they're not they're not explicitly reminded of that cost. You think, oh well, surely they they know. Well, evidently not. They don't know because the, 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 this makes a, this has a very significant impact on, on their preferences. Okay. And here's um, some um, data. The same question asked of um, groups of people, and the way the study was done was on a computer. We knew their age. This, by the way, was done with Shane Frederick, and this and the, the next few studies I'm going to just whoops. Yeah. That's funny. I'm looking at you as if uh, <laughs> more to, uh, as um, but I am going to put it down. Uh, that um, 
when in the standard frame, 42% of people want the future outcome. This, this, is, this is an exemplar of many, many questions and many, many situations. In dates, people are more patient for when um, we describe that the 11 years is when you are 11 years older. You wouldn't think that would make a difference. Surely we know that in 11 years we're going to be 11 years older. No, in fact, it makes people much more patient. This is something that, that um, I've repeated with Shane and, and without over many, many studies, right? It's incredibly, it's just, it's almost unbelievable to me that the first frame yields so much different, less patience than, than the third one. I've never found anything, I've always found this effect in many, many studies, trying various different versions of it. And then the age frame, which we actually fill in the person's age when they're either four years older or 11 years older. Clearly, this is not me, you know, the, 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 the subject here, right? There's a person who's 31 years old, oh, sorry, what would they be? Whatever they are. Okay. And another an example of this um, result is that people are willing to wait longer for a reward. They, they specify, when they specify how, much, how long they're willing to wait, they're willing to wait longer for a reward if it's specified in terms of how many, how many years older they are than if it's specified in terms of um, how many more years they have to wait. And there's a curious thing about this, that people, and, and the way we started this research, because we thought, we sort of reflected on, on, on our intuitions about how far the future seems to us if we think of ourselves as being 60, say, or think of ourselves as being, you know, say, 10 years older. And uh, we thought that thinking of ourselves as being 60 seems a long way away. But 10 years doesn't seem like that, right? But in fact, all of the, the um, evidence we find in terms of time preference seems to suggest that people are treating the when you're 60 frame as being a shorter period of time than the, um, uh, than the uh, in 10 years frame. But the curious thing is that our initial intuition was right. This is something we haven't, we haven't got reconciled yet. Still working on it. Oops. It's that people judge time as further away when it's described as age. We've done several studies on this, asking in all different types of ways. And if you describe time as, as a person's age in the future, they think it seems further away than if you describe it in terms of some units of time. And yet they discount less you know, for the age frame than for the um, um, non-age frame. It's a curious thing, but it's not been um, um, resolved yet. And it does seem that, uh, um, that marketers use this effect, or at least have the marketers maybe share the intuition um, we have. For uh, example, here's a, a little... Um, Ad, which you know, we've been told, we, you know, Shane and I again have been doing some research, sort of investigating this this framing. This this is um, an insurance company in in, um, in Connecticut near Yale, that these marketers chose to advertise that a 65 year old has a 25 percent chance of living to 92, instead of a 65 year old has a 25 percent chance of living 27 more years. Right? They're aware that that living to 92 is. Uh, is more effective than living 27 more years. And, one, and we've, we've ruled out many, many possible explanations for this, but it's still um, um, up in the air. Okay, I, think, I really think that 3.30 is my time, is not right? Time is up. Okay, I just want to show you quickly one other implication of time framing, and then I'm going to end it without you know, a lot of uh, concluding slides, because I think this is you know, interesting. So this woman, Rachel Wade, the 19-year-old on, um, on the right. 
your left, sorry, on, on, on the left. Yeah, see, this is perspective taking problem there. She murdered Sarah Luderman because of, you know, in a sort of squabble over this guy, the guy in the middle, Josh. And she received um, 20 years in prison for, uh, for, 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 um, for the murder. In 20 years, she'll be eligible for parole. Doesn't mean she will be in parole. I'll just be a sec with this. Um, and it, 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 when we were thinking about it, we thought, well, 20 years seems like, before parole, seems like a long time for a you know, young person. She never had, she didn't have any criminal record or anything. I mean, she committed a bad crime. But it wasn't like she was, you know, crime of passion, you know. But then we thought, well, you know, she's only going to be 39 when she gets out. You know, that's not really very old. There's lots of life ahead of her, and she has actually committed a bad crime. This poor Sarah is not going to have any more any life. So we tried um, an experiment in which we uh, described some uh, crimes, and we asked people to say um, when they thought the person should be eligible for parole. Either they asked them how many years, and how many years should they be eligible for parole, and how old should they be when... Uh, you know, when they should be eligible for parole, and when, in what year, should they be eligible for parole. And this is the result. Basic finding is that if you ask people in how many years they should be eligible for parole, it's much less than if you ask them how old the person should be or in what year they should be, when they should be made eligible for parole. In every single, we have three scenarios here. And it seems quite a robust. We've, done, we've repeated this study now a few times. And so it's, it's, it's quite a com compelling um, example of, uh, this is an example of a nudge. You want people to be more um, um, punitive, you can, you can ask them, you know, how old should the person be when they get released? You want them to be less punitive, how long should they be in prison before they're released? Okay, so I'll leave it there, because I've run out of time, and uh, thanks for your attention.